welcome back to my channel and welcome back to the 2023 series on undesigned coincidences. In this series, I've been trying to sort of take my time leisurely and explain various issues concerning dependence and independence, the synoptic problem, all kinds of things that do get brought up against the argument from undesigned coincidences. Today will be the last video in that series. And today I'm going to talk about an undesigned coincidence where the synoptics explain John. Something in the synoptics explains something in John. <clears throat> um, and I want to I make a few comments about direction of explanation. So in a classic undesigned coincidence, one account will say something that you could ask a question about and another account will contain the answer. Um, not all undesigned coincidences are of that kind, and of course the, the name has some fluidity in how it's applied. But that's the classic form, and another aspect of the classic form is that um, the question is raised by something that's only in one source, and the answer is found um, in something that's only in another source. Okay, so um, John doesn't contain the statement at Jesus' trial uh, that he said he would destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. And the synoptics contain that statement, but they don't contain what's in John, which explains that, which is Jesus saying back at the beginning of his ministry, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. A metaphoric prediction of his own resurrection. Um, but notice that the directionality in that case is that something found in John, which is written somewhat later than the synoptics, I don't think a whole lot later, but it is the latest of the Gospels, explains something found in the synoptics, which were written earlier. Um, we also have undesigned coincidences where something in the earlier written gospel actually explains something that we find in the later written document. Now, you know, it's, it's interesting to argue hypothetically which of these is stronger, okay? Or it, if we were to try to imagine uh, a fabricator making up, let's say, one side of the undesigned coincidence, which is more implausible that he would um, make up something that explains something found in an earlier document, or that he would make up something that is explained by something that's found in the earlier document. Well, I think that when we have the kind of casualness that we do have, and the just the appearance of the author not trying to make any connection at all, then, you know, these are both implausible, okay? Um, but you could argue either way. You could say, well, um, if, the, if the later document explains the earlier document, maybe that author noticed the lacuna in the earlier document and said, aha, I'm going to include something that answers that question, because the question is, there or could be there when you hear the earlier document um, and that that's somehow more plausible. 
I'm I'm not at all convinced of, by that. And again, this earlier discussion in my earlier video of the uh, statement, destroy this temple. John is very focused there on the fact that Jesus is predicting his own resurrection. If there's something he's trying to connect it with, that's what he's trying to connect it with. When Jesus says this, um, for all you can tell, reading the Gospel of John, he didn't even remember that it was said at Jesus' trial. He said he would destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. Maybe he remembered it, maybe he didn't. But there's absolutely no indication that he was remembering that or thinking about that. Um, and it's in such a, a distant passage as well an un, apparently unrelated passage so that it becomes really to my mind super implausible over subtle to imagine uh the author of john saying hmm you know i'm i'm gonna ha make jesus say something that he didn't really say and maybe somebody will notice that that explains something in uh the synoptic account of his trial in a completely different passage very implausible um so you could definitely argue that that's implausible. Um, but then, you know, you have it the other way around where something in the earlier gospel explains something in the later gospel. You know, why would the later gospel write something cryptic and not at least refer to the explanation of it that's found in the earlier gospel? Now, in that case, I suppose you could argue that... Um, the author of the later document assumed that his readers were familiar with the earlier document and so that they wouldn't have any actual question about it because they would already know the earlier story. Once again, casualness makes that implausible. But I, what I'm trying to emphasize here is that if you ignore casualness, then you're going to feel yourself free to make up either of these kinds of extremely subtle moves on the part of the author. And it's not clear to me that um, someone who ignores casualness is going to uh, recognize one of these as more implausible than the other. But whichever one you think is more plausible is the activity of an inventor or person who's, you know, putting something in there that didn't happen, putting words in Jesus' mouth that he didn't say, uh, since we do have apparent undesigned coincidences in both directions, you ought to acknowledge that, that you can't just be always saying, oh, well, you know, he assumed that this was common knowledge, or oh, well, you know, he, he assumed that um, people would notice you know, how he's explaining something that was there earlier, even though he's not trying. Because we've got, we got both of these going on. And that should, that kind of variety of evidence should really have a force in and of itself and make you stop and think. So today I'm going to be talking about a coincidence between something that Jesus said or is reported to have said in John 21, 15 and something that Peter is reported to have said in the synaptics, for example, in uh, Mark 14. So this is a resurrection appearance in John 21. Make of that what you will. It is a coincidence concerning an actual event that is 
in a sense, part of the miracle of the resurrection. I'm not hiding that fact, but I'm just talking about the appearance of connection between these two statements, the statement of Jesus and the statement of Peter. And yeah, you know, that confirms historicity and it's, it's good to recognize that. Con confirmation, of course, is a matter of degree. It's not, hey, that's confirmed, boom, that automatically happened, but this is some evidence in favor. And we do find undesigned coincidences concerning miraculous and non-miraculous things. Jesus cleansing the temple and making that statement and then um, the people bringing that testimony against him at his trial, that's not miraculous. Jesus rising from the dead and sitting around eating fish with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, that is miraculous. But let's look and see how it fits together with something reported in the synoptics. Okay, so Jesus is sitting there eating with his disciples as reported, John 21, and he had fish ready for them and they came and sat down to start eating. And he turns to Peter and he says, do you love me? He addresses him and he says, do you love me more than these? And Peter's kind of disconcerted and he says, well, Lord, you know that I love you. And the conversation goes on. You, if you're a Christian, you've been in church or if you've been in church, you probably heard a lot of sermons about this passage. Okay. So what does he mean when he says, do you love me more than these? Well, he appears to be asking if Peter loves him more than the other disciples love him. Now I'm going to talk more about that. This is going to be a slightly longer video. I'm going to talk more about why that appears to be what he's saying later on. If you want to consider some alternative interpretation, but to state the coincidence, he appears to be asking Peter if he loves him more than the others disciples love Jesus. Now, Jesus is often telling them not to compare themselves to each other, not to compete, not to be saying, hey, I want to be the first in your kingdom and so forth. So it's a little weird for Jesus to be starting and kind of needling Peter and saying, hey, Peter, you know, you love me more than these guys? Like, why would he do that? And you will not find in the Gospel of John an explanation for specifically that comparison. You will find Peter promising at the, at the Lord's Supper, at the, uh, the Last Supper, that he will go with Jesus even unto death. And you will find Peter denying Jesus then when he was afraid and when push came to shove. But you won't find any earlier comparison between Peter's love and the other disciples love. So that's weird because Jesus appears to be encouraging Peter to make that comparison. Well, Peter doesn't, he doesn't affirm in John 21 that he loves Jesus more than the others do. He just affirms that he loves him. And then Jesus commissions him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs and so forth. Okay. The explanation for that comparison is found in the synoptics to take uh, Mark's version Okay, they've gone out to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus says, you're all going to forsake me this night. He predicts that they're all going to run away. 
And Peter says, even if they all forsake you, I never will. Okay, so Peter boasts that regardless of what the other guys do, he will never forsake Jesus. Okay, and then as, as the story goes on, of course, he not only runs away, then he tries to not run away. He tries to come and follow Jesus, but then his nerve breaks and he denies Jesus. So he, he doesn't actually turn out to be able to be as staunch as he said he was. And it, it's particularly upsetting, no doubt. I mean, I think it's just upsetting generally. Um, and he goes out and weeps, you know, when he realizes, when it comes home to him, what he's done. But especially galling because he said, I, I will never forsake you, even if they all do, because he's putting himself above the others. So it seems to me very obvious that in this passage in John 21, when Jesus said, do you love me more than these? It's an allusion to that boast that he does love him more than these do, more than these other disciples do. And yet that particular boast is not found in John. And this conversation is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So they fit together. There's that classic undesigned coincidence, fitting together explanation question. And in this case, the question comes up in John 21. Why, as I put it in hidden in plain view, the section header, why is Jesus being so mean? You know, why is Jesus, and why is Jesus encouraging competition, it seems? Well, he's reminding Peter of that boast. And John, of course, as, as my husband Tim likes to put it, could not have arranged ahead of time that the others would contain the explanation to his gospel. Now, you can say, well, he figured that everybody would know about it. But even so, if he wanted them to be sure to make the connection, again, if he's making it up, remember, people who make stuff up, are self-conscious. They have goals. They're trying to be believed. They're trying to make connections. And so if the idea is to make his account more credible, more believable by, by connecting it back to something in the synoptics, but he's actually inventing this scene by the seashore, why not include that boast of Peter? He, he has a similar place where Peter says, um, you know, I'll die with you, it would have been very easy to include the fact that Peter says, even if they all forsake you, I never will. Either at the time when Peter does it or in a flashback in John 21. And yet he doesn't. So there's this casualness, again, that he doesn't appear self-consciously to be trying to do this in order to make that connection. Um, and that's where the undesignedness part comes in. Okay. Now, for the rest of this video, I'm going to be discussing an alternative attempted explanation of what Jesus uh, may have meant by the words, or the author may have been portraying Jesus as meaning by the words, do you love me more than these? And that is, do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than the boats? Do you love me more than the life of a fisherman? Okay, um, I consider that to be very, very implausible. And so uh, normally when I present this, I, I don't even bring that up. I bring it up in hidden in plain view. I give a brief answer to it. Um, I, don't, I don't like to give 
too much space, too much time to things I consider really implausible. If you also consider that to be a really implausible thing that John is portraying Jesus as, meaning, you know, feel free to stop the audio, stop the video right now, go about your day. But if you want to hear some things that I have to say about that, that's what the rest of this is going to be about, and a brief announcement at the end about what I'm going to be doing as my next series on this channel. Okay, so that's an alternative that gets brought up. And in fact, there's a very famous gospel song, Lovest Thou Me More Than These, My Child, What Will Your Answer Be? O precious Lord, I love thee more than all of these, more than fame, more than wealth, more than the world. I like that song. It's got a pretty tune and um, sticks with you. Um, and there's probably a tendency to preach sermons implying that that's what he meant so that the the life of fishing then on this interpretation is viewed as sort of worldly as if Peter had um, done something wrong by going fishing at the beginning of the chapter he says hey I'm going fishing and then six others say hey we'll go with you and it says who those six others were including the beloved disciple, by the way, he's said to be there. Um, and that's like a kind of a kind of pious interpretation, but a skeptic might also want to go with that because then it would just destroy the undesigned coincidence because, you know, Jesus isn't even being portrayed as meaning anything that connects up with the um, earlier statement by Peter. Now, on the face of it, this is really implausible. Uh, Jesus talks a lot about forsaking everything to follow him. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have their nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Let the dead bury their dead. When uh, someone comes and says, first, let me go and bury my father. And, you know, he makes this very radical demand. Um, he tells the rich young ruler, go sell all that you have and come and follow me. Um there's a place where Peter himself says, we've forsaken all to follow you. So Jesus does make radical demands. And yet what we never find is specifically the idea of the life of a fisherman as being a, a heavy alternative. And what I'm getting at here is, you know, I'm not saying that, that Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John were paupers. Um, you might sort of think of them as working middle class if, if we were to uh, apply a sort of anachronistic thing, you know, like the, the guy who, who owns his own small car repair shop or something like that. Um, but the life of a fisherman was not regarded as a life of wealth and ease. It, it was hard work. Um, it, it depended on the elements. It depended on this, to a certain extent, of factors beyond your control. And so, just on the face of it, this would be really cryptic if that's what Jesus meant. To be sitting there, hey, do you love me more than these? And for his even immediate audience to be portrayed as understanding him, like, hey, you know, the, this worldly life of uh, fish and boats and it's like what you know it, it would just be a very odd way for him to express that um even when jesus says to peter from henceforth 
you will catch men after an earlier great catch of fish. Something to bear in mind is that Peter continued to own a boat. And that's obvious at the beginning of John 21. He says, I'm going fishing. You know, and they, they don't say to him, you can't go fishing. You gave up your boat when you started to follow Jesus. No, he's still got a boat. And in fact, throughout all of Jesus' ministry, somebody has a boat because Jesus treats this boat as sort of his personal taxi service back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. You know, he'll, he preaches in one case from, uh, from the boat, uses it as a kind of pulpit, and the crowds are on the shore, and then um, he's like, hey, let's go to the other side. They go to the other side. Um, then there's a time when they feed the he feeds the 5,000 on the other side, and he says to the disciples, okay, you guys get back in the boat, go back to the other side. Back and forth. Okay, so um, somebody is retaining a boat. Um, when Jesus appears to his disciples in the Gospel of Luke, he says, do you have any food? And one of the kinds of food that they have is fish. Um, and, you know, okay, they could have, in theory, bought the fish. But when you put together the fact that there's a boat available throughout Jesus' entire ministry. And that after Jesus' ministry, um, Peter says, hey, I'm going fishing. And a bunch of others say, hey, we'll come and join you. And that they they have fish to eat, okay? Um, it looks like from time to time, some of them went and fished. I mean, you know, it's it's not portrayed as intrinsically wrong and worldly. And so even at the calling of um, the sons of Zebedee early in Jesus' ministry, it says, you know, they forsook all and followed him. That's got to be thought of in a slightly hyperbolic way, again, because a boat continues to be available to him, presumably one of those, those fishing boats. So I think we're importing it into the text to say, oh, Peter should not you know, have gone fishing, that in the, the ethos, as it were, of the Gospel of John, we're supposed to condemn Peter and the other disciples for going fishing, um, that they were returning to worldly pursuits or something like that. They <clears throat> had to eat, okay? They needed to do something. There's nothing wrong with their doing something to take care of themselves. Later, when the church is founded, the Apostle Paul articulates the principle that um, the it's okay for the ministers of the gospel to be supported, you know, uh, although he himself continues to make tents. But the church hasn't been founded yet. There's not uh, some big community here to support the apostles so that, as they say in the book of Acts, they can devote themselves full-time to the preaching of the word. So it's, I don't think, supposed to be wrong for them to go fishing. So, you know, I'm sorry if I, if I ruined somebody's Easter service by saying that um, and somebody's prospective Easter sermon by saying that, but I, I would encourage you to rethink that if you are thinking that Jesus is condemning fishing. Um, there's another point to be made here. This is grammatical, and I don't want to overemphasize it, okay? Um, but I think it is some force. This was pointed out to me um, by a person, I believe his name was John Krivak, when I was um, writing Hidden in Plain View. 
he may actually even have disagreed with me about the interpretation of the passage, but he, he pointed out this grammatical point. So I'm giving credit where it's due. Um, in the synoptics, we find Jesus saying things that have a similar form to this, do you love me more than these? Probably one of the closest is in the Sermon on the Mount where he says uh, the life is more than food and the body is than clothes. All right, so he's telling them, don't worry about what you're gonna eat and what you're gonna wear. Okay, life is more than food. Do you love me more than these? The word for more there is the same. Um, and the, the thing that comes after it, more than blank, is in the same form as genitive. It's a genitive, like it's the genitive here. These, do you love me more than these? Um, now, the these in this case could be either masculine or neuter. Sometimes the masculine and neuter have the same form, and if it's one uh, of those, it's not going to refer to the disciples, but if it's masculine, it, you know, prima facie refers to the other disciples. Uh, but it, it is just genitive, and the is not the life more than the uh, food. It, again, is genitive or the uh, body more than the clothes um, with that same word, uh, play on, I believe is how it's pronounced. All right, more than. All right, and notice that in that locution, um, the thing that comes after more than is the implicit subject of its own verb. I mean, the verb isn't stated, but that the life is more than the food implicitly is, right? All right, so similarly here, the parallel would be, do you love me more than these implicitly love me? You follow that? All right, and uh, there's a, another locution. It doesn't use the same word for uh, more, but where uh, Jesus says that you must um, that you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, so it's it's a little um, different. It's a verb, you know, to be to be of value, to be of more importance. But um, again, the sparrows, the word sparrows there, the word for the birds is in that genitive. So and implicitly there, same thing, you know more important than sparrows implicitly are. So again, the parallel here would be love me more than these implicitly love me. So, okay, those are synoptic passages. This is John. Uh, Jesus may not have been speaking in Greek in any of these instances. These might all be translations uh, into Greek from something he actually said in Aramaic. I don't want to lean on it too much but it's of some relevance. And in a place where he is talking about not loving something more than him, in the synoptics, he uses a completely different locution uh, where he says, if anyone comes after, if you come after me and you uh, love your family above me, you love your family more than you love me, you cannot be my disciples, he uses a different locution. He uses a uh, a uh, preposition, uh, 
prepare, like hyper, meaning above, and then that object of the preposition is in the proper case for that preposition. So love above me. Once again, that's synoptic. This is John. Jesus might not have been speaking in Aramaic in any case, but the point, or might have been speaking in Aramaic, might not have been speaking in Greek in any case. But, you know, the point is that we at least have some evidence there grammatically that Jesus speaking in this way is implicitly implying love me more than these love me and that he would have been understood as such. I consider it to be a stronger point that um, it seems improbable to me that the disciples sitting around would have understood him to be, you know, sort of gesturing, referring to this life of fishing, you know, like that's supposed to be this great, wonderful thing. Uh, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Uh, because, you know, you just love the fish so much. You just love the boats so much. You just love the life of a fisherman so much. Peter had shown already by following Jesus for years because he wouldn't have had time to do a lot of fishing. He, again, kept the boat, went fishing from time to time, but he was definitely willing to follow Jesus um, rather than rather than being a full-time fisherman. So for many reasons, that's a very implausible interpretation to my mind. Since I heard it brought up again recently, I just thought I would give a longer discussion of it because some people might be interested in that. Now, next time, I'm going to start a completely new series, and I, I hope there will be some interest in this. There's been an article published recently about name statistics in the Gospels and the argument that Richard Balcom makes from name statistics in the Gospels uh, that supports historicity as part of an overall cumulative case for historicity. And this is by uh, two people, Gregor and Blaze, supposedly just debunking Balcom's name statistics argument. And so what I've decided to do is to put some of my thoughts out here. These are in the nature of somewhat preliminary thoughts, but I've read their article and I see some definite problems, you know, right up front, even without doing an entire um, alternative, you know, statistical analysis. That's something that may come later. But I'd like to get these thoughts out there. After I do them in a series, I might do something on someone else's channel as well to make this available. But I think it's it's interesting and it's important because their article, of course, is going to be cited like, eh, you know, that name statistics argument is garbage and uh, not so fast, not so fast. So I'll be starting that next time around. So please come back to the Lydia Bibber channel where we're making common sense rigorous.